Section 13 of Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 1, by Washington Irving. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 1, by Washington Irving. Book 2, Chapter 3 having in the trifling digression which concluded the last chapter discharged the filial duty which the city of new york owed to communipaw as being the mother settlement and having given a faithful picture of it as it stands at present i return with a soothing sentiment of self-approbation to dwell upon its early history the crew of the Gude Vrouw being soon reinforced by fresh importations from Holland, the settlement went jollily on, increasing in magnitude and prosperity. The neighboring Indians in a short time became accustomed to the uncouth sound of the Dutch language, and an intercourse gradually took place between them and the newcomers. The Indians were much given to long talks, and the Dutch to long silence and in this particular therefore they accommodated each other completely the chiefs would make long speeches about the big bull the wabash and the great spirit to which the others would listen very attentively smoke their pipes and grunt ja mein herr whereat the poor savages were wondrously delighted they instructed the new settlers in the best art of curing and smoking tobacco while the latter in return made them drunk with true hollands and then taught them the art of making bargains a brisk trade for furs was soon opened the dutch traders were scrupulously honest in their dealings and purchased by weight establishing it as an invariable table of avoir du poids that the hand of a dutchman weighed one pound and his foot two pounds it is true the simple indians were often puzzled by the great disproportion between bulk and weight for let them place a bundle of furs never so large in one scale and a dutchman put his hand or foot in the other the bundle was sure to kick the beam never was a package of furs known to weigh more than two pounds in the market of communipaw this is a singular fact but i have it direct from my great-great-grandfather who had risen to considerable prominence in the colony being promoted to the office of waymaster on account of the uncommon heaviness of his foot the dutch possessions in this part of the globe began now to assume a very thriving appearance and were comprehended under the general title of new nederlands on account as the sage van der donk observes of their great resemblance to the dutch netherlands which indeed was truly remarkable, excepting that the former was rugged and mountainous, and the latter level and marshy. About this time the tranquillity of the Dutch colonists was doomed to suffer a temporary interruption. In 1614, Captain Sir Samuel Argall, sailing under a commission from Dale, governor of Virginia, visited the Dutch settlements on Hudson River and demanded their submission to the english crown and virginian domination to this arrogant demand as they were in no condition to resist it they submitted for the time 
like discreet and reasonable men. It does not appear that the valiant Argall molested the settlement of Communipaw. On the contrary, I am told that when his vessel first hove in sight, the worthy burghers were seized with such a panic that they fell to smoking their pipes with astonishing vehemence, insomuch that they quickly raised a cloud, which, combining with the surrounding woods and marshes, completely enveloped and concealed their beloved village, and overhung the fair regions of Pavonia, so that the terrible Captain Argall passed on, totally unsuspicious that a sturdy little Dutch settlement lay snugly couched in the mud under cover of all this pestilent vapour. In commemoration of this fortunate escape, the worthy inhabitants have continued to smoke almost without intermission unto this very day, which is said to be the cause of the remarkable fog which often hangs over Communipaw of a clear afternoon. Upon the departure of the enemy, our magnanimous ancestors took full six months to recover their wind, having been exceedingly discomposed by the consternation and hurry of affairs. They then called a council of safety to smoke over the state of the provinces. At this council presided one Olaf van Cortland, who had originally been one of a set of peripatetic philosophers, who passed much of their time sunning themselves on the side of the great canal of Amsterdam in Holland, enjoying, like Diogenes, a free and unencumbered estate in sunshine. His name, Cortland, Shortland or Lackland, was supposed, like that of the illustrious Jean Sans Terre, to indicate that he had no land. But he insisted, on the contrary, that he had great landed estates somewhere in terra incognita, and he had come out to the New World to look after them. Like all land speculators, he was much given to dreaming. Never did anything extraordinary happen at Communipaw, but he declared that he had previously dreamt it, being one of those infallible prophets who predict events after they have come to pass. This supernatural gift was as highly valued among the burghers of Pavonia as among the enlightened nations of antiquity. The wise Ulysses was the more indebted to his sleeping than his waking moments for his most subtle achievements, and seldom undertook any great exploit without first soundly sleeping upon it. And the same may be said of Olaf van Cortland, who was thence aptly denominated Olaf the Dreamer. As yet his dreams and speculations had turned to little personal profit, and he was as much a lackland as ever. Still he carried a high head in the community. If his sugar-loaf hat was rather the worse for wear, he set it oft with a taller cock's tail. If his shirt was none of the cleanest, he puffed it out the more at the bosom. And if the tail of it peeped out of a hole in his breeches, it at least proved that it really had a tail and was not a mere ruffle. The worthy Van Cortland, in the council in question, urged the policy of emerging from the swamps of Communipaw and seeking some more eligible site for the seat of empire. Such, he said, was the advice of the good St. Nicholas, who had appeared to him in a dream the night before, and whom he had known by his broad hat, his long pipe, and the resemblance which he bore to the figure on the bow of the good Vrouw. 
Many have thought this dream was a mere invention of Olaf van Cortlandt, who, it is said, had ever regarded Communipal with an evil eye, because he had arrived there after all the land had been shared out, and who was anxious to change the seat of the empire to some new place where he might be present at the distribution of town lots. But we must not give heed to such insinuations, which are too apt to be advanced against those worthy gentlemen engaged in laying out towns and in other land speculations. This perilous enterprise was to be conducted by Olaf himself, who chose as lieutenants or coadjutors Meinheers Abraham Hardenbroek, Jacobus Van Zant, and Wynant Tenbroek, three indubitably great men but of whose history although i have made diligent inquiry i can learn but little previous to their leaving holland nor need this occasion much surprise for adventurers like prophets though they make great noise abroad have seldom much celebrity in their own countries but this much is certain that the overflowings and offscourings of a country are invariably composed of the richest parts of the soil and here I cannot help remarking how convenient it would be to many of our great men and great families of doubtful origin, could they have the privilege of the heroes of yore, who, whenever their origin was involved in obscurity, modestly announced themselves descended from a god, and who never visited a foreign country, but what they told some cock-and-bull stories about their being kings and princes at home this venal trespass on the truth though it has been occasionally played off by some pseudo marquis baronet and other illustrious foreigner in our land of good-natured credulity has been completely discountenanced in this sceptical matter-of-fact age and i even question whether any tender virgin who was accidentally and unaccountably enriched with a bantling would save her character at parlour firesides and evening tea-parties by ascribing the phenomenon to a swan a shower of gold or a river god had i the benefit of mythology and classic fable above alluded to i should have furnished the first of the trio with a pedigree equal to that of the proudest hero of antiquity his name van zant that is to say from the dirt gave reasons to suppose that like triptolemus themis the cyclops and the titans he had sprung from dame terra or the earth this supposition is strongly corroborated by his size for it is well known that all the progeny of mother earth were of a gigantic stature and van zant we are told was a tall raw-boned man above six feet high with an astonishingly hard head nor is this origin of the illustrious van zant a whit more improbable or repugnant to belief than what is related and universally admitted of certain of our greatest or rather richest men who we are told with utmost gravity did originally spring from a dunghill of the second of the trio but faint accounts have reached to this time which mentioned that he was a sturdy obstinate worrying bustling little man and from being usually equipped in an old pair of buckskins was familiarly dubbed hardenbroek or tough breeches tenbroek completed this junto of adventurers it is a singular but ludicrous fact 
which, were I not scrupulous in recording the whole truth, I should almost be tempted to pass over in silence, as incompatible with the gravity and dignity of history, that this worthy gentleman should likewise have been nicknamed from what in modern times is considered the most ignoble part of the dress. But, in truth, the small clothes seems to have been a very dignified garment in the eyes of our venerated ancestors, in all probability from covering that part of the body which has been pronounced the seat of honour. The name of Tenbrook, or, as it was sometimes spelt, Tinbrook, has been indifferently translated into Ten Breeches and Tin Breeches, the most elegant and ingenious writers on the subject declare in favour of tin, or rather thin, breeches, whence they infer that the original bearer of it was a poor but merry rogue, whose galligaskins were none of the soundest, and who peradventure may have been the author of that truly philosophical stanza. Then why should we quarrel for riches, or any such glittering toys? A light heart and thin pair of breeches will go through the world, my brave boys. The high Dutch commentators, however, declare in favour of the other reading, and affirm that the worthy in question was a burly, bulbous man, who in sheer ostentation of his venerable progenitors was the first to introduce into the settlement the ancient Dutch fashion of ten pair of breeches. Such was the trio of coadjutors chosen by Olaf the Dreamer to accompany him in this voyage into unknown realms. As to the names of his crews, they have not been handed down by history. Having, as I before observed, passed much of his life in the open air among the peripatetic philosophers of Amsterdam, Olaf had become familiar with the aspect of the heavens and could as accurately determine when a storm was brewing or a squall rising, as a dutiful husband can foresee from the brow of his spouse when a tempest is gathering about his ears. Having pitched upon a time for his voyage when the skies appeared propitious, he exhorted all his crews to take a good night's rest, wind up their family affairs, and make their wills precautions taken by our forefathers, even in after-times when they became more adventurous, and voyaged to Haverstraw, or Catskill, or Groot Esopus, or any other far country beyond the great waters of the Tappan Zee. End of section 13